There's a young lady that calls me periodically. I don't know her name. She has never given me her name. But uh, every time she calls, she is in desperate straits, not really knowing which way to go or what to do. She's tried everything. She's been involved in TM and EST, and she's gone to a number of different churches, and she's skirted around the outside of the Christian faith looking in, but she's never been willing to commit her heart to the Lord Jesus. And uh, there's a tremendous struggle going on in her heart, because when she looks in, she sees something that seems very worthwhile to her. She she honestly believes that's the answer to, to her problem, but she's afraid to take that step. I find there are a lot of people that have that problem, and uh, that's the, the concern that Jesus has in the passage that we're dealing with this morning. Let's uh, turn to Matthew 11, and we want to finish the section that we began last week, Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. We'll begin reading with verse 20. Then Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of, the, of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, there would have, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day, Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, words like this always seem so strange coming from the Lord's lips, because Scripture tells us that he came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. And as the Old Testament tells us, judgment is God's strange work, and yet here... From the lips of our Lord, who is gentle and compassionate and who loved people as no one ever loved anyone, there's this uh, word of judgment, and it sounds so harsh and unreasonable. And yet it's here. He begins this passage with an oracle of, of judgment, a prediction of judgment upon these cities. So we, we need to gain some understanding of the, uh, of the reason for Jesus making this statement. The city of Capernaum, we know, that was Jesus' hometown. These other two towns are not as well known. Bethsaida was a little town off to the east on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, about as far as from here to Meridian, from, uh, from Capernaum. It was the hometown of Peter and Andrew. The other city of Chorazin, we know almost nothing about. It's not located on any maps today. It was probably a couple of miles to the north of Capernaum, but uh, we simply don't know much about the city. The thing that struck me as I read this passage this past week is Matthew's words that this is where most of Jesus' works were done. And yet we know nothing of what he did in those cities, absolutely nothing. It is possible that the feeding of the 5,000 took place close to the city of Bethsaida, but we're not even sure where that, where that event uh, occurred. So uh, there is no statement in Scripture about any of the mighty works which Jesus did in these three cities. And yet we're told by Matthew that most of his works were done there, but he was rejected. They uh, saw him raise the dead and heal the sick, give sight to the blind and open the ears of, of the uh, deaf. They heard his gracious words and they saw his lowly manner, and yet they, uh, they were indifferent to the whole thing. And Jesus says it, would, it will actually be better for Sodom 
and Tyre and Sidon than for you in, in the day of judgment. Now, all three of these cities that Jesus compares these three cities in, in Palestine with, Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, were infamous for their wickedness. Sodom was a place of terrible inhumanity and, and vice and crime. Uh, we're familiar with the story of Sodom from the book of Genesis. It was destroyed because of their, their uh, violence and their inhumanity. And yet Jesus says if he had walked the streets of Sodom, they would have repented. And uh, then again, Tyre and Sidon are two famous Phoenician cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea which Jesus compares these three Galilean cities with. And they also were infamous for their wickedness. That's where Jezebel came from. She was a Tyrian. She was from Tyre. And yet Jesus says, if he had walked the streets of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Had they seen the mighty works that Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum had seen, they would have repented. But they didn't. And as proof of that statement, if you go on reading through Matthew in chapter 15, you have the story of Jesus' conversation with the Syrophoenician woman, the woman from, from this region. Jesus made a quick trip through Tyre and Sidon, and this woman came out to meet him, proclaimed him as Christ, the son of David, and, and longed for his salvation. But uh, the cities, Jesus' own hometown, Capernaum, and Chorazin, and Bethsaida, did not respond. And we're not told that they took any action against Jesus. They simply were indifferent. He walked their streets. They performed, he performed miracles. And they said, that's, uh, that's amazing. And then they forgot him. They were indifferent to the Lord Jesus. And that's why he predicts judgment. Now, he's not doing so gleefully. He's not happy about the whole thing. It, it brings sorrow. He's not, uh, it's, it's not because he's angry that he denounces the cities. He simply predicts that judgment is coming because they, they've rejected the only, the only solution to their problem. Uh, heard a story once of a group of elders who fired their pastor, hired another young man, and they were asked why. And they said, well, because uh, when the first man preached, he always preached judgment. And they said, well, what does the, uh, what does the second pastor do? He says, well, he, t- he preaches judgment too, but he doesn't sound like he's glad about it. <laughs> well, you see, you don't see any, any gleeful note in the Lord here. He's not happy. He, he wept over Jerusalem. And, uh, his word, woe, uai, in, in, in Greek is a, is a mourning term. He's sorrowful. And yet he knows that judgment is inevitable because whenever we reject light, the only result, the, the inevitable result is darkness. God's judgment is not always immediate, but it's certain. As someone has put it, the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but they do grind exceedingly fine. And we know from, the, from other portions of Scripture, the book of Romans, for instance, that what God does is just let people have what they want. If they want darkness, then he gives them over to darkness. And that's what happened to these three cities. Because they have rejected the light, they became more and more desperate in their, in their condition. And then inevitably, he says, judgment will come. Now, it's only reasonable that this should happen. Somehow, we know that, that judgment is necessary. This world has to be more just than it appears to be on the surface. If God is God, he has to 
he has to judge. He can't let man run amok and do what he pleases and, and get away with his selfishness and pride and, and greed and get off scot-free. That's just not the way the world is. Somehow we all reason that uh, if a man enriches himself by selling drugs to kids and destroys their, life, their lives, that, that if God is God, he has to do something about that ultimately. He can't let men go on and destroy the human race. He has to act. But you see, our problem is we always draw the line out there. We say God will get them. But we forget that if God is God, he has to judge right across the board. And all of our greed and violence, though it's on a smaller scale in the hurt that we meet out to people, you know, we, we have, we're responsible for that as well. God will never make peace with sin. When his own son became sin for us, God killed him. God will never make peace with sin. But because he loves us, he's already paid for the judgment. It all fell on his son. And when we get under him, the judgment falls on him. And there's no condemnation, you see. But these are people that had rejected the only solution that God had to offer to man's predicament. The Lord's not angry with them because of specific sins they were committing. He wasn't angry about anything they'd done. He was sorrowful because they had rejected the only answer. And so he pronounces this judgment. And then, in verse 25, we read, At that time, that is, in reaction to their rejection, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So you see, following hard on the heels of this, uh, this announcement of judgment coming on these cities is the announcement of his grace and his love and his desire that that men and women come to him. Now, there's a principle here. He tells us that something is revealed to babes which is hidden from the wise and intelligent. And he doesn't identify what it is. He simply says, these things, but you don't have to look far in the context to know what he's talking about. He's talking about the great revelation which the Lord Jesus made about the nature of life and things, as the apostle Peter puts it. It's the things that pertain to life and godliness. The things that we would never know apart from revelation. The great secrets, the lost secrets of humanity. The great mysteries of life that we don't understand, that psychologists can never tell us. The nature of man, what he's for, what his destiny is. How he can live life as he knows he ought to live it. How to be the right kind of husband or wife or parent or mother see, or father or businessman or employee. That's something that uh, cannot be gained through human reason. Uh, there are some things we can learn apart from revelation. Uh, you can learn a great deal about the world around us. The natural sciences use the scientific method, the empirical method, to discover truth about the world, the natural world, and that's legitimate. We can learn through what we see and what we feel, what we taste and what we touch. And we can measure it with a yardstick or an oscilloscope or something else. And we can learn about 
about life that way or there are certain things that we can reason out. We can use our our minds and that's legitimate. But but man's ultimate destiny, what we're here for, that we'll never know through scientific means or through reason. That's why psychologists do not understand men. That, that's why psychologists, uh, uh, psychology is so trendy. Because in, in this hour, this is the scheme that works. And five years from now, there'll be another scheme. Because apart from revelation, we simply do not understand man and what he's for. You can go only so far. And then you run into a brick wall. And it's mystery. We can't understand man apart from revelation. Suppose I were to walk into your kitchen and you had a teapot going on the stove and I say to you, "What? Uh, why is that water boiling? Well, there are a number of answers you could give. One would, if you were a scientist, you could explain it in terms of uh, molecular action and the effect of heat on, on molecules and that would be one legitimate explanation. But you know in the back of your mind, the answer to that question is, I'm going to fix a cup of tea. And I can never know that until you revealed it, you see. And that's the way the world is. We can explain man in terms of molecules in motion and he has, you know, certain behavior patterns that, predict, that are predictable, but certain elements that are identifiable. But after a while, you just run into a big mystery. And what in the world is man for? And Jesus says that's the sort of thing that's revealed to babes not to the wise and intelligent. Now, he's using that term in irony. He doesn't. There's nothing wrong with being wise and intelligent. He means people who are wise and intelligent in their own eyes, who simply won't become babies. They won't receive truth. They won't respond to revelation. They want to think it out themselves. And he says, to people like that, the truth is remains, the truth about man remains a mystery. We just cannot know man and what he is. Some of you... Uh, Seniors, high school seniors, in a few weeks, months, are going to be headed off to the university. You know what a university is. It comes from two Latin words, uni, which means one, and versus, which just means verse. It's one line, one line of poetry. That's what the term comes from. In other words, when you go off to the university, then you will learn how to integrate everything around one line. You'll find the integrating principle of life. You'll find what life is for and what you were meant to do and what your destiny is and your vocation and how to do it. That's the purpose of university. So you go off to school and you spend four years studying. At the end of four years, you get your uh, baccalaureate degree and they say, now you know what man is. And you say, you do? What am I here for? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? What, how can I make sense out of the universe? You know what they'll tell you? Well, what you need is a master's degree. <laughs> so you spent two more years getting a master's degree. And when you get the master's degree, you're supposed to know one verse. You're supposed to have the integrating principle of life. But, but you say, well, I still don't understand. By this time, you're probably married and got four or five kids. And you, you're wondering, how in the world am I going to keep this thing together? And how can I love my wife when she's not loving and what do I do with these kids? And what are they for? You've just made your life more complicated. And they say, no, what you need is a Ph.D. And so you go on and you get your Ph.D. in butterfly wings or something. And, and then you're supposed to have the answer to life. 
But you don't. Because man by searching cannot find out God. You'll never know God that way. I remember years ago when I was working with students, someone gave me a, a tome to read. It was a set of, actually a set of systematic theologies by a very well-known theologian, liberal theologian here in the United States. And he said, you must read this because everyone on the campus is talking about this man and you must understand him. So I read the, the introduction to the work and he says in the introduction, I have never had a so-called conversion experience. And the thought that crossed my mind is, well, then this man doesn't know anything about God. And as I read through the book, I was convinced he didn't know God. He was a very learned man. Uh, he was a very bright man. But he didn't know God. He had searched and searched and searched, but he had never found God. He didn't understand God. He didn't understand man. He didn't know how to live his life or what it was for or what his destiny was. And he was simply another illustration of the fact that man, apart from revelation, cannot understand a thing about man and about life. He can know a lot about nature, but he can't know anything about himself and how to live life as God intended us to live, how to master our moods, how to cope with our, with our circumstances, how to handle our habits that dominate us. That comes from revelation. And Jesus says you have to be a baby to understand those truths. You have to submit willingly to God and let him teach you. Jerome said that the Bible is a book in which lambs can wade, but elephants must swim. It's a good word. When we approach the word as a lamb with a gentle heart, a willingness to hear God and listen to him, then we derive benefit from it. There's truth there. But if we reject revelation and resort to reason or any other means of finding truth about God, we'll never know him. We'll never know the purpose of life. And furthermore, Jesus says it's all designed that way. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. In other words, this, not, this is not an accident. This is simply the way God planned things. But the key is given to us in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's what it means to become a baby. It's to come to Christ. If you're weary and if you're heavy laden, come to him, he says, and I'll give you rest or relief. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find relief for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. The Lord here gathers up the two aspects of human misery, the active and the passive. There are those who are weary of searching and there are those who are burdened down by life. You, you know the weary. Perhaps you're one of them. It's dear people who are looking for something that will give meaning to their life. They may have tried to find it originally in education or in, uh, in some religion. Uh, maybe they're involved in some cult today or a new school of, of philosophy or psychology and they're looking desperately 
for the key to life? Where's something that will give meaning and purpose to my life? They're like the woman that Jesus met at the, uh, at the well in Samaria. He's making his way through the region of Samaria on up to Galilee, and here came this dear lady out to the well. And uh, in the course of their conversation, Jesus said to her, go, uh, go tell your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. That's right. You've had five, haven't you? And the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And you can think your way back through that poor woman's life and you can see her looking desperately for love and being rejected by one man after another. And finally, she just gave up any attempt to try to legitimatize the relationship and she was just living with a man, hunting for somebody who would fill up this big ache in her heart. She was weary of searching. And then there are those that are burdened down and crushed by life. Life just hasn't treated them properly. They've had one uh, one distressing circumstance after another. They're broken, crushed by the burdens of life. Jesus says to those, come to me, come to me. And in one word, that's the answer. That's the solution to all of life's ills. Sounds so simple, but it's so hard because our wills rebel. We don't want to come to him. We want to do it ourselves. We want to try to work it out our own way. And Jesus says, come to me. Not come to church, but come to me. Dorothy Sayers says that most people think of the Christian life as going to church, avoiding drink and disorderly conduct. And that's Christianity. But it's not. It's not. It's coming to Christ. It's giving up your life to him. It's yielding over your mind and your soul and your body and your spirit to him, making him Lord. And if you're weary, you're tired of struggling, you're burdened with life, that's the person to whom you need to go. As Jesus puts it, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now that's the first command. Come to me, he says. All you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The second is found in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Actually, that's one command stated two ways. Take my yoke upon you. That is, learn from me. A yoke is a picture, a symbol of submission. Uh, an ox was placed under a yoke as a way of controlling him, and he submitted to that yoke, and that's what Jesus is saying. It's not enough merely to come to the Lord. We need to submit to his lordship. That's what it means to be a Christian. We need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the name of the game. We can't any longer go our own way and choose our own life. We need to take his yoke upon us and learn from him. You see, that's what it means to be submissive. Let him teach you about life. Let him tell you how to be the right kind of father. When he says, love your wives, husbands, like I love my bride, the church, then that's what we need to do. But you say, well, my, my wife is rather unlovely. She's not easy to love. She's cold. She's unresponsive. She doesn't love me back. It's all right. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there's really only one person, only one irascible person in the world we can do very much about, and that's ourselves. You love your wife. 
just as Christ loves his bride. Well, how did he love his bride? Well, he loved her when she was sinful, when she was rebellious, when she was cantankerous. He just loved her, gave himself to her. And Jesus' husbands loved your wives. And we can't call ourselves Christians and ignore that command. The world says, no, no, if your wife is hard to live with, go find another wife. And Jesus says, no, you love her just the way she is. Jesus says, don't feel sorry for yourself. You know why? Because self-pity will always ruin the, the quality of your life. It makes you depressed. We think we can dabble around with the flesh and not pay the consequences, but we can't. The flesh loves to feel sorry for itself. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you do something dumb in public and embarrass yourself, and you start feeling sorry for yourself, or somebody cuts you down, or somebody doesn't respond the way you think they should, and so we just indulge in a little self-pity. We sit in the corner, and we have a case of the woe is me's, and we just feel so sorry for ourselves, and we like it, but we don't like the consequences because it always makes you depressed, and that's what the Lord wants to spare you from. And you know what he says to do? Rejoice in the Lord always. You don't have to give thanks for the, for the rejection that you experience. But that circumstance is an area, and that's where the Lord has planted you. So you give thanks for the Lord's adequacy in that situation. And he's the one that's planning and ordering your life and putting it all together. So give thanks. So I can't really call myself a Christian and justify self-pity. I may do it. But I can't justify it, see? I can't justify uh, sexual fantasies. I can't justify dishonest, dishonesty in my business dealings. Because Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And you'll find relief. The reason most of us don't find relief is because there's some area of our life that we're not willing to submit to Christ's lordship. Maybe it's just a bitterness in your heart, a resentment against somebody that's wronged you in the past and you can't forgive them. So you cling to that and it just ruins the quality of your life. There's no relief. There's no rest. But when we take Jesus seriously at his words and we submit to his yoke and we say, all right, Lord, it may be tough, it may be hard, it runs against the grain, but I'll do it. Then there's rest. That's what he promises. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Now, there are two reasons Jesus gives for these two commands. One is that he is gentle and humble in heart. He's not a hard taskmaster. He doesn't drive us hard. He's patient with the slow, tolerant with those of us that learn hard. And I'm one of them. Learning comes hard. But you know, he's very patient. He's a shepherd who loves the sheep. Shepherd, good shepherds do not kick the sheep. Can you imagine a shepherd and a wayward sheep goes out, gets his staff, stupid sheep, starts beating it over the head with his stick? That's not the way the Lord deals with us. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's kind. He's understanding. He's been one of us. He knows how tough it is to live in this world. And when we fail, he doesn't reject us. His attitude is, how can I help? 
There's my son again, struggling. What can I do to give help? All of his purposes toward us are redemptive. He may have to discipline, but even that is redemptive. Because he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. And so the second reason he gives for taking his yoke and learning for him from him is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The uh, word that's translated easy here actually means well-fitting. You know, in, in those days when they made, an o- made a yoke for an ox, they didn't have one yoke that was a sort of multi-purpose yoke that they could use for any ox. They would bring the ox to a carpenter, which, by the way, makes me wonder if Jesus hadn't made yokes in his youth in Joseph's carpenter shop and therefore understood very well this analogy. Uh, they would bring the, the ox to a carpenter and the, the carpenter would fashion a yoke out of wood that exactly fit the back, the neck of the, of the ox. And that's the term that he uses here. The, the Lord's yoke for you and me is tailor-made. He understands us. He made us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows what what the deepest hurts of our heart are. He knows what our longings are. He knows us. And so his submission in terms of our lives, it's always personal and individual. His lordship, rather, is always personal and individual. It's not arbitrary. It's just ruthlessly imposes will. It's both gentle and quiet, and it's tailor-made to meet our needs. And furthermore, he says the burden is light. The yoke that he puts on our back is not heavy, and you know why? Because he's in there with us. That's why he begins this uh, word of encouragement by saying, come to me. That's how it begins. You can't learn from him until you come to him. Because that's where we find the strength to be what we ought to be. As Ian Thomas used to put it, for all that he asks, we have all that he is, and that's all that it takes. We have his life available to fulfill his demands upon us. And that's what makes the burden light. And if you're thinking that becoming a Christian is something beyond your abilities, it is. It is. Well beyond my ability. But these demands upon me are ultimately demands upon him and his capabilities. And I can count on him to fulfill his aspirations in me. So two commands, come to me and learn from me. Two reasons, because I am meek and gentle in heart and because the yoke is easy and light. And one result, he says, you'll find relief. And oh, what a relief it is when you take his yoke upon you. Jesus is actually quoting here from Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah speaks to a rebellious nation and he says, Stand by the paths and see and ask, Where are the ancient paths where the good way is? And walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. The word that Jeremiah uses for the ancient paths is a path that's uh, worn down by many feet. And Jeremiah is saying, When you stand by the paths and you see all these possible options, ways to go. Ask, where's the good way? Where's the ancient paths? Where's the paths down which Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and others of God's men and women have trod? And walk in it, he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. And that's what Jesus is saying. Down through the ages, 
When people have committed their hearts to Jesus Christ and continued in that commitment, walking with him and counting upon him and relying upon his strength, they have found the relief that they're looking for. Their circumstances haven't gotten any better necessarily. So we saw from last week, life doesn't get any easier. But we have a resource for living life as God intends us to live it. I quoted at the Kiwanis meeting last Tuesday morning C.S. Lewis's words. He says, down through the years, whenever men needed courage, they might cry out, Billy Bud, help me, and nothing much happened. In our culture, we would probably say John Wayne or, or Douglas MacArthur or someone like that. Or, he said, if, uh, if men lacked wisdom, they might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happened. But he said, for 1,900 years, whenever men and women have been in desperate need and they've cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something has happened. If you've never uttered that cry, you can do that this morning. Say, Lord Jesus, help me. Come into my life. And by so doing, you're coming unto him. That's the first step. I uh, read an interview with Charlie Green some years ago in Sports Illustrated. He was our 100-meter hopeful a few years back. And uh, in the course of the interview, the, the writer asked him why he practiced starts two hours a day. He, he does hardly any running. He just practiced starts. And he says, well, at my level of competition, the first step is the difference between winning and losing. And I thought when I read that, aha, the first step in life, the, the step that makes the difference between winning and losing is coming to Christ. And if you acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord, you've taken that first step. And then learn from him. Submit to his yoke. Do what he tells you to do. Because he's in there with you. And his efforts are redemptive and helpful and constructive. And the demands that are placed upon you are ultimately demands upon him. And as Jesus puts it, you'll find rest for your souls. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, this world is so full of things that cause turmoil and anguish to us. And uh, we find ourselves getting restless, frightened by the future and, and by our present circumstances. Thank you for this good word this morning, this reminder that as we come to you and learn from you, you give us what we need to live life as we know we should live it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.